Section Three of Hunger by Knut Hompson, translated by George Egerton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part One continued. I woke up early in the morning. It was still quite dark as I opened my eyes, and it was not till long after that I heard five strokes on the clock downstairs. I turned round to doze again, but sleep had down. I grew more and more wakeful and lay and thought of a thousand things. Suddenly a few good sentences fitted for a sketch or a story strike me. Delicate linguistic hits of which I have never before found the equal. I lie and repeat these words over to myself, and find that they are capital. Little by little others come and fit themselves to the preceding ones. I grow keenly wakeful. I get up and snatch paper and pencil from the table behind the bed. It was as if a vein had burst in me. One word follows another, and they fit themselves together harmoniously with telling effect. Scene piles on scene, actions and speeches bubble up in my brain, and a wonderful sense of pleasure empowers me. I write as one possessed, and fill page after page without a moment's pause. Thoughts come so swiftly to me, and continue to flow so richly, that I miss a number of telling bits, that I cannot set down quickly enough, although I work with all my might. They continue to invade me. I am full of my subject, and every word I write is inspired. This strange period lasts, lasts such a blessedly long time before it comes to an end. I have fifteen, twenty written pages lying on my knees before me, when at last I cease and lay my pencil aside. So sure as there is any worth in these pages, so sure am I saved. I jump out of bed and dress myself. It grows lighter. I can half distinguish the lighthouse director's announcement down near the door, and near the window it is already so light that I could, in case of necessity, see to write. I set to work immediately to make a fair copy of what I have written. An intense, peculiar exhalation of light and color emanates from these fantasies of mine. I start with surprise as I note one good thing after another, and tell myself that this is the best thing I have ever read. My head swims with a sense of satisfaction. Delight inflates me. I grow grandiose. I weigh my writing in my hand and value it, at a loose guess, for five shillings on the spot. It could never enter anyone's head to chaffer about five shillings. On the contrary, Getting it for half a sovereign might be considered dirt cheap, considering the quality of the thing. I had no intention of turning off such special work gratis. As far as I was aware, one did not pick up stories of that kind on the wayside, and I decided on half a sovereign. The room brightened and brightened. I threw a glance towards the door, and could distinguish without particular trouble the skeleton-like letters of Miss Anderson's winding-sheet advertisement to the right of it. It was also a good while since the clock had struck seven. I rose and came to a standstill in the middle of the floor. Everything well considered, Mrs. Gunderson's warning came rather opportunely. This was, properly speaking, no fit room for me. There were only common enough green curtains on the windows, and neither were there any pegs too many on the wall. The poor little rocking-chair over in the corner was in reality a mere attempt at a rocking-chair. With the smallest sense of humor, 
one might easily split one's sides with laughter at it. It was far too low for a grown man, and, besides that, one needed, so to speak, the aid of a bootjack to get out of it. To cut it short, the room was not adopted for the pursuit of things intellectual, and I did not intend to keep it any longer. On no account would I keep it. I had held my peace, and endured and lived far too long in such a den. Buoyed up by hope and satisfaction, constantly occupied with my remarkable sketch, which I drew forth every moment from my pocket and re-read, I determined to set seriously to work with my flitting. I took out my bundle, a red handkerchief that contained a few clean collars and some crumpled newspapers, in which I had occasionally carried some bread. I rolled my blanket up and pocketed my reserve white writing paper. Then I ransacked every corner to assure myself that I had left nothing behind, and as I could not find anything, went over to the window and looked out. The morning was gloomy and wet. There was no one about at the burnt-out smithy, and the clothesline down in the yard stretched tightly from wall to wall, shrunken by the wet. It was all familiar to me, so I stepped back from the window, took the blanket under my arm, and made a low bow to the lighthouse director's announcement, bowed again to Miss Anderson's winding-sheet advertisement, and opened the door. Suddenly the thought of my landlady struck me. She really ought to be informed of my leaving, so that she could see she had had an honest soul to deal with. I wanted also to thank her in writing for the few days' overtime in which I occupied the room. The certainty that I was now saved for some time to come increased so strongly in me that I even promised her five shillings. I would call in some day when passing by. Besides that, I wanted to prove to her what an upright sort of person her roof had sheltered. I left the note behind me on the table. Once again I stopped at the door and turned round. The buoyant feeling of having risen once again to the surface charmed me, and made me feel grateful towards God and all creation, and I knelt down at the bedside and thanked God aloud for His great goodness to me that morning. I knew it, ah! I knew that the rapture of my inspiration I had just felt, and noted down, was a miraculous heaven brew in my spirit, in answer to my yesterday's cry for aid. It was God, it was God, I cried to myself, and I wept for enthusiasm over my own words. Now and then I had to stop and listen if anyone was on the stairs. At last I rose up and prepared to go. I stole noiselessly down each flight and reached the door unseen. The streets were glistening from the rain which had fallen in the early morning. The sky hung damp and heavy over the town, and there was no glint of sunlight visible. I wondered what the day would bring forth. I went as usual in the direction of the town hall, and saw that it was half-past eight. I had yet a few hours to walk about. There was no use in going to the newspaper office before ten, perhaps eleven. I must lounge about so long and think, in the meantime, over some expedient to raise breakfast. For that matter, I had no fear of going to bed hungry that day. Those times were over. God be praised. That was a thing of the past, an evil dream, henceforth excelsior. But, in the meanwhile, the green blanket was a trouble to me. Neither could I well make myself conspicuous by carrying such a thing about right under people's eyes. What would anyone think of me? And as I went on, I tried to think of a place where I could have it kept till later on.
It occurred to me that I might go into Sims and get it wrapped up in paper. Not only would it look better, but I need no longer be ashamed of carrying it. I entered the shop and stated my errand to one of the shop boys. He looked first at the blanket, then at me. It struck me that he shrugged his shoulders to himself a little contemptuously as he took it. This annoyed me. "'Young man,' I cried, "'do be a little careful. There are two costly glass vases in that. The parcel has to go to Smyrna.' This had a famous effect. The fellow apologized with every movement he made for not having guessed that there was something out of the common in this blanket. When he had finished packing it up, I thanked him with the air of a man who has sent precious goods to Smyrna before now. He held the door open for me and bowed twice as I left. I began to wander about amongst the people in the marketplace, kept from choice near the woman who had potted plants for sale. The heavy crimson roses, the leaves of which glowed blood-like and moist in the damp morning, made me envious and tempted me sinfully to snatch one and I inquired the price of them merely as an excuse to approach as near to them as possible. If I had any money over I would buy one, no matter how things went. Indeed, I might well save a little now and then out of my way of living, to balance things again. It was ten o'clock, and I went up to the newspaper office. Scissors is running through a lot of old papers. The editor has not come yet. On being asked my business, I delivered my weighty manuscript, led him to suppose that it is something of more than uncommon importance, and impress upon his memory gravely that he is to give it into the editor's own hands as soon as he arrives. I would myself call later on in the day for an answer. All right, replied Scissors, and busied himself again with his papers. It seemed to me that he treated the matter somewhat too coolly, but I said nothing only nodded rather carelessly to him, and left. I had now time on hand. If it would only clear up. It was perfectly wretched weather, without either wind or freshness. Ladies carried their umbrellas to be on the safe side, and the woolen caps of the men looked limp and depressing. I took another turn across the market and looked at the vegetables and roses. I feel a hand on my shoulder and turn round. Missy bids me good morning. Good morning, I say in return, a little questioningly. I never cared particularly for Missy. He looks inquisitively at the large brand-new parcel under my arm and asks, What have you got there? Oh, I've been down to Sim and got some cloth for a suit. I reply in a careless tone. I didn't think I could rub on any longer. There's such a thing as treating oneself too shabbily. He looks at me with an amazed start. By the way, how are you getting on? He asks it slowly. Oh, beyond all expectation. Then you have got something to do now. Something to do? I answer and seem surprised. Rather, why I am a bookkeeper at Christensen's, a wholesale house. Oh, indeed, he remarks and draws back a little. Well, God knows I am the first to be pleased at your success. If only you don't let people beg the money from you that you earn. Good day. A second after he wheels round and comes back and, pointing with his cane to my parcel, says, I would recommend my tailor to you for the suit of clothes. You won't find a better tailor than Isakson. Just say I sent you, that's all. 
This was really rather more than I could swallow. What did he want to poke his nose in my affairs for? Was it any concern of his which tailor I employed? The sight of this empty-headed dandified masher embittered me, and I reminded him rather brutally of ten shilling he had borrowed from me. But before he could reply, I regretted that I had asked for it. I got ashamed and avoided meeting his eyes, and, as a lady came by just then, I stepped hastily aside to let her pass, and seized the opportunity to proceed on my way. What should I do with myself whilst I waited? I could not visit a café with empty pockets, and I knew of no acquaintance that I could call on at this time of day. I wended my way instinctively uptown, killed a good deal of time between the marketplace and the Grandson, read the Often Post, which was newly posted on the board outside the office, took a turn down Car Johan, wheeled round and went straight on to Our Saviour Cemetery, where I found a quiet seat on the slope near the mortuary chapel. I sat there in complete quietness, dozed in the damp air, mused, half-slept, and shivered. And time passed. Now, was it certain that the story really was a little masterpiece of inspired art? God knows if it might not have its faults here and there. All things well weighed, it was not certain that it would be accepted. No, simply not even accepted. It was perhaps mediocre enough in its way, perhaps downright worthless. What security had I that it was not already at this moment lying in the waste-paper basket? My confidence was shaken. I sprang up and stormed out of the graveyard. Down in Acres Garden, I peeped into a shop window, and saw that it was only a little past noon. There was no use in looking up the editor before four. The fate of my story filled me with gloomy forebodings. The more I thought about it, the more absurd it seemed to me that I could have written anything usable with such suddenness, half asleep, with my brain full of fever and dreams. Of course I had deceived myself, and been happy all through the long morning for nothing, of course. I rushed with hurried strides up Ulevoldsian, past St. Hans Hill, until I came to the open fields, on through the narrow quaint lanes of Sajin, past waste plots and small tilled fields, and found myself at last on a country road, the end of which I could not see. Here I halted and decided to turn. I was warm from the walk, and returned slowly and very downcast. I met two hay-carts. The drivers were lying flat upon the top of their loads, and sang. Both were bareheaded, and both had round, carefree faces. I passed them and thought to myself that they were sure to accost me sure to fling some taunt or other at me, play me some trick. And as I got near enough, one of them called out, and asked what I had under my arm. A blanket. What o'clock is it? he asked then. I don't know rightly, about three, I think. Whereupon they both laughed and drove on. I felt at the same moment the lash of a whip curl round one of my ears, and my hat was jerked off. They couldn't let me pass without playing me a trick. I raised my hand to my head more or less confusedly, picked my hat out of the ditch, and continued on my way. Down at St. Hans Hill I met a man who told me it was past four. Past four! Already past four! I mended my pace, nearly ran down to the town, turned off towards the news office. Perhaps the editor had been there hours ago 
and had left the office by now. I ran, jostled against folk, stumbled, knocked against cars, left everybody behind me, competed with the very horses, struggled like a madman to arrive there in time. I wrenched through the door, took the stairs in four bounds, and knocked. No answer. He has left, he has left, I think. I try the door which is open, knock once again, and enter. The editor is sitting at his table, his face towards the window, pen in hand, about to write. When he hears my breathless greeting he turns half round, steals a quick look at me, shakes his head, and says, Oh, I haven't found time to read your sketch yet. I am so delighted, because in that case he has not rejected it, that I answer, Oh, pray, sir, don't mention it. I quite understand. There is no hurry, in a few days, perhaps. Yes, I shall see. Besides, I have your address. I forgot to inform him that I no longer had an address, and the interview was over. I bow myself out and leave. Hope flames up again in me. As yet, nothing is lost. On the contrary, I might, for that matter, yet win all. And my brain began to spin a romance about a great council in heaven, in which it had just been resolved that I should win, I triumphantly win ten shillings for a story. If I had only some place in which to take refuge for the night, I consider where I can stow myself away, and am so absorbed in this query that I come to a standstill in the middle of the street. I forget where I am, and pose like a solitary beacon on a rock in mid-sea, whilst the tides rush and roar about it. A newspaper boy offers me the Viking. It's a real good value, sir. I look up and start. I am outside Sim's shop again. I quickly turn to the right about, holding the parcel in front of me, and hurry down Kierkegaden, ashamed and afraid that any one might have seen me from the window. I pass by Ingebret's and the theatre, turn round by the box-office, and go towards the sea, near the fortress. I find a seat once more, and begin to consider afresh. Where in the world shall I find shelter for the night? Was there a hole to be found where I could creep in and hide myself till the morning? My pride forbade my returning to my lodging. Besides, it could never really occur to me to go back on my word. I rejected this thought with great scorn, and I smiled superciliously as I thought of the little red rocking-chair. By some association of ideas, I find myself suddenly transported to a large double room I once occupied in Hogdehaugen. I could see a tray on the table, filled with great slices of bread and butter. The vision changed. It was transformed into beef, a seductive piece of beef, a snow-white napkin, bread in plenty, a silver fork. The door opened. Enter my landlady, offering me more tea. Visions, senseless dreams. I tell myself that were I to get food now, my head would become dizzy once more. Fever would fill my brain, and I would have to fight again against many mad fancies. I could not stomach food. My inclination did not lie that way. That was peculiar to me, an idiosyncrasy of mine. Maybe as night drew on, a way could be found to procure shelter. There was no hurry. At the worst I could seek a place out in the woods. I had the entire environs of the city at my disposal. As yet, there was no degree of cold worth speaking of in the weather. 
and outside there the sea rocked in drowsy rest, ships and clumsy broad-nosed prams ploughed graves in its bluish surface, and scattered rays to the right and left, and glided on whilst the smoke rolled up in downy masses from the chimney-stacks, and the stroke of the engine-pistons pierced the clammy air with a dull sound. There was no sun and no wind. The trees behind me were almost wet, and the seat upon which I sat was cold and damp. Time went. I settled down to doze, waxed tired, and a little shiver ran down my back. A while after I felt my eyelids began to droop, and I let them droop. When I awoke it was dark all around me. I started up, bewildered and freezing. I seized my parcel and commenced to walk. I went faster and faster in order to get warm, slapped my arms, chafed my legs, which by now I could hardly feel under me, and thus reached the watch-house of the fire brigade. It was nine o'clock. I had been asleep for several hours. Whatever shall I do with myself? I must go to some place. I stand there and stare up at the watch-house and query if it would not be possible to succeed in getting into one of the passages if I were to watch for a moment when the watchman's back was turned. I ascend the steps, and prepare to open a conversation with the man. He lifts his axe in salute, and waits for what I may have to say. The uplifted axe, with its edge turned against me, darts like a cold slash through my nerves. I stand dumb with terror before this armed man and draw involuntarily back. I say nothing, only glide farther and farther away from him. To save appearances I draw my hand over my forehead, as if I had forgotten something or other, and slink away. When I reached the pavement I felt as much saved, as if I had just escaped a great peril, and I hurried away. Cold and famished, more and more miserable in spirit, I flew up Karl Johann. I began to swear out loud, troubling myself not a whit as to whether anyone heard me or not. Arrived at Parliament House, just near the first trees, I suddenly, by some association of ideas, bethought myself of a young artist I knew, a stripling I had once saved from an assault in the Tivoli, and upon whom I had later called on. I snapped my fingers gleefully, and wend my way to Tordenschold Street, find the door on which is fastened the card with C. Zacharias Bartell on it, and knock. He came out himself, and smelled so fearfully of ale and tobacco that it was horrible. "'Good evening,' I say. "'Good evening. Is that you? Now, why the deuce do you come so late? It doesn't look at all its best by lamplight. I have added a hayrick to it since, and have made a few other alterations. You must see it by daylight. There is no use our trying to see it now.' Let me have a look at it now all the same," said I, though, for that matter, I did not in the least remember what picture he was talking about. Absolutely impossible, he replied. The whole thing will look yellow, and besides, there's another thing, and he came towards me whispering. I have a little girl inside this evening, so it's clearly impracticable. Oh, in that case, of course, there's no question about it. I drew back, said good-night, and went away. So there was no way out of it but to seek some place out in the woods. If only the fields were not so damp. 
I patted my blanket and felt more and more at home at the thought of sleeping out. I had worried myself so long trying to find a shelter in town that I was wearied and bored with the whole affair. It would be a positive pleasure to get to rest, to resign myself. So I loafed down the street without thought in my head. At a place in Hogdehagen, I halted outside a provision shop where some food was displayed in the window. A cat lay there and slept beside a round French roll. There was a basin of lard and several basins of meal in the background. I stood a while and gazed at these eatables, but I had no money wherewith to buy. I turned quickly away and continued my tramp. I went very slowly, passed by Major Stuen, went on, always on, it seemed to me for hours, and came at length to Bogstad's Wood. I turned off the road here and sat down to rest. Then I began to look about for a place to suit me, to gather together heather and juniper leaves, and make a little bed on a little declivity where it was a bit dry. I opened the parcel and took out the blanket. I was tired and exhausted with the long walk, and lay down at once. I turned and twisted many times before I could get settled. My ear pained me a little. It was slightly swollen from the whiplash, and I could not lie on it. I pulled off my shoes and put them under my head, with the paper from Simb on top. And the great spirit of darkness spread a shroud over me. Everything was silent, everything. But up in the heights soughed the everlasting song, the voice of the air, the distant, toneless humming which is never silent. I listened so long to this ceaseless, faint murmur that it began to bewilder me. It was surely a symphony from the rolling spheres above, stars that intone a song. "'I am damned if it is, though!' I exclaimed, and I laughed aloud to collect my wits. "'They're night owls hooting in Canaan!' I rose again, pulled on my shoes, and wandered about in the gloom, only to lay down once more. I fought and wrestled with anger and fear until nearly dawn, then fell asleep at last. End of section 3